companies want to be much more specific and much more targeted. So, you know, they want to get specific types of products into specific markets and they want to hit certain goals in very specific timeframes. And, you know, if you're a retailer or distributor, you will have probably hundreds of suppliers that you're working with and hundreds of thousands of products. So if you imagine you've got these different agreements, different deals, different conditions tied to all of that, it's just a huge, huge amount of data to try and manage. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just stand still. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Well, movement is key, right? The world is filled with flat squirrels who just couldn't make a decision. But since you're listening to this, I expect that you are progressing, filling your think tank, riding waves, innovating, and iterating. And that is awesome. So whatever you do, keep on moving. You know, I'm continually inspired by SaaS founders and our executive navigation and boardroom groups. If you don't know what that is, we have a growth accelerator of SaaS founders and CEOs collaborating to grow revenue, boost valuations, and and just be around people who make us better. Like better what? Well, like better leaders, better husbands and wives, better parents, better business leaders, and just better humans. But we spent time together this week and have a really unique way of working together in sprints. So while the rest of the world works in quarters, we get in six to eight hyper-focused sprints a year and then hang out together at the end of every one of those. And I love to do that. But I heard win after win after win, roadblocks removed, deals closed, relationships built, obstacles obliterated, and most importantly, just absolute clarity on next steps. I love that. I mean, the progress is just astounding. And it's not like it's uncommon at all, but it never, ever gets old. And to see the movement and progress and just faces light up talking about it is just awesome. So it's a a true honor to hang out with such awesome people who also happen to be stellar SaaS leaders. So big shout out to our clients in Executive Navigation and Boardroom and everybody keep on moving. Progress is absolutely inspiring. Well, in last week's episode, Jan Kaminsky, Chief Sales Officer and Co-Founder of AppLover, had a great conversation about development, future of technology sales, and more. Great conversation for anyone building tech, selling, outsourcing, or thinking about it. And I'll bet that's you. So if you missed it, go back and check it out for sure. Our current guest this week is Andrew Butt, co-founder and CEO of Enable, a modern cloud-based B2B software solution for rebate management. Distributors, wholesalers, and manufacturers across 50 industries now have a seamless, easy solution to execute and track their full range of trading programs. You know, Andrew and his co-founder actually met 20 years ago while learning to fly helicopters. How about that? Another honorary member of the SAS Fuel Flying Club. Enable is their third business together. I love that. When founders stick together and they do multiple things over and over, serial entrepreneurs. So this is their third business after two other exits. So welcome to the show, Andrew Butt. 
Today's episode is sponsored by my book, Small Fish Big Pond, building a world-class business that swims circles around competitors. So why do some companies achieve explosive growth while others sink into the depths? What do exceptional SaaS companies do that mediocre companies don't? And what can SaaS leaders learn from fish? Small Fish Big Pond delivers powerful business lessons guaranteed to change the way you view your business and includes hands-on exercises and growth tools to get lightning-fast results. Get your copy today at smallfishbigpond.com. Use the code SASFUEL to unlock special bonus content. Well, hey, Andrew, welcome to SAS Fuel. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, you know, can tell a little bit by your accent uh, where are you originally from? <laughs> yeah, originally from the UK. Love it. So I was born in the UK, spent a lot of years there before moving to the US. And so now you're in San Francisco, and this is your third startup. That's true. So tell me a little bit about that. What has that journey been like? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, my two passions in life have always really been computing and also uh, flying. So as a child, I wanted to be an airline pilot, stumbled into an airfield in the UK many years ago and uh, started helping them with their IT, really. This is going back to the, the kind of late 90s, so a long time ago now. And they gave me some great advice, which was they said, stick to computing as a career and aviation as a hobby, which was advice I followed. And it was really through the flying school that I met some really fascinating entrepreneurs and business people who all had kind of software and IT challenges. And I was there to help. And that really led me to form my early businesses prior to Enable. So that's really where the whole thing started. And those early businesses were really service companies. So, you know, building software for other people and managing those software solutions on their behalf. That's great. And so are you a pilot yourself? I mean, you have the aviation background. Yes, absolutely. So, so I, I became a qualified helicopter pilot quite early on, and then I actually did my fixed wing, as it's called, uh, later. So both planes and helicopters. But I don't get much time for that anymore. Yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm a pilot myself, but don't get to fly nearly as much as, uh, as I would like. It's interesting. A lot of the, the people I've interviewed on the, the show have been pilots. So maybe we ought to just call it pilot fuel. Or, you know, it's a show about flying. Yeah. 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 Well, I have to ask you then, what were you flying? What did you fly, Jeff? Primarily fixed wing, not to, not a helicopter pilot. You know, would love to be, you know, maybe an initial rating one of these days. That's uh, primarily single engine land, some multi-engine instrument rated. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Seaplanes will probably be a, a rating I'll do here shortly. Just, you know, fascination. And what would it be like to land on water? Exactly. That'd be fun. So as I understand, that's where you met your co-founder was uh, through aviation and, and learning to fly. That's right. Exactly. So I met uh, Dennis Short, who was learning to fly. He was running and is still running a very successful distribution company in the UK. It's now the largest distribution company for Procter & Gamble, Unilever and Gillette, many other brands. So we just got talking really through the flying school and uh, he showed me about the amazing growth he was experiencing and some of the challenges around the data that he was trying to manage. And that eventually led to the idea and the inspiration really behind Enable that we formed together. 
And so then tell me about the businesses that you've started together and, and just what that journey has looked like over the years. Yeah, sure. So in the very early days, when we first met, we really combined forces and launched a couple of services businesses together. So I was this sort of techie guy, you know, who was, was able to build applications and uh, d- was very naive when it came to business. And he had great kind of uh, business knowledge and networks and connections and expertise in that area. So the early businesses were uh, really, again, building software. And this was when the web started to take off in a big way. So, you know, year 2000, uh, web software, all software now is on the web, isn't it? But it was a big thing back then. So sure. we were kind of building software applications for other people. And sometimes we found we were building software applications for software companies. So they were building a great product and outsourcing the actual development work to us. And uh, so that kind of gave us the inspiration and the desire to build our own product, you know, rather than just building products for other people. We wanted to kind of build our own thing and get lots of people using it and feel that sense of ownership and, and impact. So that then led eventually to Enable being formed as a SaaS company where we launched our own product. And we're probably talking now about kind of 2016, so five or six years ago when we, we launched Enable. And so what does Enable do? How does it work? Sure. So Enable is a software platform that is used primarily by manufacturers, distributors, and retailers. And they all have complex trading agreements between them, which describe you know, business goals, business plans, and incentives and, and rebates linked to those goals. So it's all about if I purchase a certain quantity or a certain value of product and sell it to a certain customer type or geography, I will then achieve and earn an incentive. And this goes on across the supply chain in many, many different industries. It's become a huge proportion of profitability in both retail and distribution because this is how to really drive behavior. You know, if you say to someone, do these various things and then we will send you a check that tends to get quite good results <laughs> whereas if you just say we'll give you a massive discount and you can buy the thing and then you know do what you like with it which usually means do very little then that doesn't drive behavior so enable is a software platform to manage all of that we're a tool where you can actually create these agreements track these agreements execute them and really our software helps people to drive their business better and make more revenue and profit through the use of incentives and rebates that's really smart. And you're correct. I mean, the, the industry has moved a, a lot that way. And sometimes one incentive downstream is dependent on upstream. So you really do have a lot of complexity in, in how those work. Yes, exactly. And it's only becoming more complex because companies want to be much more specific and much more targeted. So, you know, they want to get specific types of products into specific markets and they want to hit certain goals in very specific time frames and you know if you're a retailer or distributor you will have probably hundreds of suppliers that you're working with and hundreds of thousands of products so if you imagine you've got these different agreements different deals different conditions tied to all of that it's just a huge huge amount of data to try and manage sure and, and you definitely want to make sure you're collecting all of those incentives, not just what you're entitled to, but actually driving that behavior so you're not leaving money on the table. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. There's different tiers of that. So you're absolutely right. The first point is just collect what you're entitled to, which, by the way, most people don't do. They think they do, but because they're not tracking it very specifically, then it's, there's a lot that gets missed through the cracks. And you know, we've literally seen millions of dollars that is missed by single companies. So it's essentially very big. 
So that's just claiming what you're entitled to. And then to your point, it's also about how can I actually do better with my existing agreements? So I've got all these agreements in place. How could I direct my day-to-day decisions, buying and selling decisions to do better? And then there is how could I negotiate even better agreements in the future as well? So all of those things. Makes sense. So how did you come up with the idea for this? Sure. So so this was very much going on in DCS, which was Dennis's company and is Dennis's company um, to this day. And so DCS really sits between the manufacturers like the Procter & Gamble's and the Gillette's and then a whole long list of distributors, wholesalers, retailers across the UK and overseas as well. So really the core of DCS is central distribution. And so they're buying products from those manufacturers and then combining them together, providing all sorts of added value services and selling it downstream. And these incentives and rebates were a growing part of the whole business model. You know, downstream customers expected them, manufacturers wanted to use them, they wanted to move away from discounting and towards incentives and rebates. So this whole thing was shifting at pace. And there just wasn't any modern software to do this well. You know, most ERP systems claim to do this. And to be fair, some of them do do it in a basic capacity, but it's almost just like an afterthought. It's just on the side. And so what we actually find is most people use Excel spreadsheets to track what could be billions of dollars of, of revenue. Wow. So so we kind of looked at the market and we just couldn't find anything. And also we were being asked by a lot of companies to build it for them. So they were saying, could you build us a system to manage all of this? And it didn't take us too long to realize this is a huge product opportunity. Oh, that's interesting. So the original development, was that more client driven or was that based on your own needs inside DCS? So initially it was quite, okay, so well, both. So DCS, as I said, definitely had a need. And so it came from there, but also we were getting requests from other companies. And when we had an early version of a system for DCS that we could show to other companies that confirmed the interest level. So for a while we were building this on a custom or a bespoke basis. And we built it for, say, three or four different companies as well as DCS. And that that was how it kind of grew in the early days. Okay. And as a a technical founder or co-founder, how important was it to have somebody that was really on the the business side as a co-founder? What was that relationship like? Sure. Well, certainly it was critically important. I didn't have the experience back then. And, you know, we're going back originally probably, you know, quite a long time. So early 2000s when we first got together, you know, well before we actually launched the product that we have today. And so that was very important. What I found is I became very interested and fascinated by the business side of it. And uh, that's always been one of my traits. I've always wanted to run before I could walk. And so that was the thing that really interested me. And I wouldn't say I was gifted technical founder or anything like that. You know, yes, I could do some programming and I could build a few things. But um, quite quickly, I realized that my interest and thing I wanted to pursue was the business side. And I could bring in people far better than me on the technical side. That's a great trait to have. I mean, so many founders want to hold on instead of, of hiring people smarter and better than them and, and really you know, accelerate. But I love that the curiosity and just that, that pursuit of wanting to learn more and not just being satisfied with, you know, I'm, I'm good in one area, but, uh, but that innovation is really, you know, a, really a big driver for growth. Yes, sure. No, I think curiosity generally, I mean, when we're looking at candidates and interviewing now, then that is a great trait, isn't it? Just people that want to understand and ask questions and ask good questions. So I would completely agree. So what are the things that you look for in hiring, you know, ideal people for your company, whether technical or in other areas? Mm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, at this stage, you know, we're now kind of over 300 people and growing very rapidly. And I personally am not not doing that much hiring because we've got kind of leaders who do that. Sure. But I could so. But in terms of what I would look for and what we look for as a company, it is down to kind of attitude. It is down to again, a willingness to learn and and ambition and that curiosity again, because we've had a lot of success in training people. So we've brought people in who have those attributes and are are very intelligent and capable people, but they might not be experienced. And and then we've got great kind of enablement programs, training programs, we we can develop people throughout their career. So I'd say that's what we've done for a long time. Since we kind of launched our SaaS product and then quite quickly after that raised capital we're growing at quite a fast rate and so we have also brought in some really experienced people as well uh, that have got that kind of done it before type experience and I think the success is creating that fusion between the two so you want to be continuously bringing people in who aren't experienced but who are very capable and have high potential that you can develop and then you also need to bring in some people that have got that done it before experience. It's a really good balance. So what have been the transition points as you've continued to grow and fundraise and, and now, you know, 300 people is pretty big. So you're not managing directly, you're managing through people and probably two or three, maybe four layers of people. So what have been the, the changes that you've had to make as a leader to accomplish that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the company transition points, you know, the UK is very different from Silicon Valley. And the whole approach to running a business is to get to profitability very, very quickly and then you know, grow steadily and remain profitable. And that's, that's great generally, but when there's a huge opportunity and a huge market, then that approach is just too slow because if you want to be the market leader and you, you grow profitably from day one, then it, you'll just never get there. You know, it'll take a hundred years or something to get to the market leader and someone will overtake you. So I certainly learned a lot in the UK and, and had great mentors and a great kind of grounding, and but realized, to really fulfill the potential, we would raise capital and the place to do that would be the US. And I looked at the UK, I looked at Europe, and I also also looked at East Coast and West Coast. And I think things have changed a bit through the pandemic now and the playing field is a, is a bit more level. But I would still say that Silicon Valley is great and the whole kind of attitude towards investing and opportunity and risk and reward is you know brilliant out here on the West Coast. So I came out here two and a bit years ago it was kind of beginning of 2000 it was just before the lockdown so quite quite a crazy time to do that and i literally had nobody here there were no employees we had got some early customers here already that we were supporting from the uk but there were no no employees here and i just started knocking on doors and i said to vcs you know i'm going to move here or i have moved here i'm moving here right now will you invest in in a series a and uh really since then the whole thing has just exploded and taken and, and the growth rate has rapidly increased and it's been like a, a bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy in that we raised the a uh, we use that investment to start hiring quite rapidly uh, some great people again some really experienced people uh, that have you know grown um, SaaS companies at this rate before uh, and, and also you know uh, more, more people kind of on the ground and that really led to a lot of success uh, ex- acceleration of growth and of course that then in itself attracted more capital and so that's why i say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy you, you kind of demonstrate the growth you can raise raise more and then you can invest that in in growing faster again so i think you know coming out here to the us and that first raise was definitely an inflection point and since then we've kind of done a huge amount in the last 24 months 
Um, and I can then certainly talk about management and leadership and the other things, but maybe I'll pause for a minute so I don't dominate the conversation. <laughs> no, that's great. I would love to hear about that. And that is incredible growth. And when we first started talking, I think you had uh, 200, maybe 100 here in, in uh, the States and maybe 100 in the UK. And so now it's an, another third uh, just growth, a series A, series B and continuing the rocket ride. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, so we had zero people in the US and North America two years ago. And now, yeah, you're right, it, it will be probably 150, 160 in North America and similar, similar in the UK. And so I think part of this has been bringing people in who have been very successful in the past, have got you know proven track record of hyper growth and who have great networks and who then naturally draw more talent in. Um, so if you can get you know some of those people into the business, you, you'll find great talent will, will follow you know more easily than just almost calling and trying to hire people without that. So that has been helpful. And you're right that we we have kind of a leadership group, which is a total of 12 individuals. And then we have, I think now in terms of managers, we probably have about 40 managers in total across kind of US, Canada and the UK. We've actually very excited to say we've just started hiring in Australia. So we've got our first few people oh, in Australia great. now as well. So, so yeah, so we've got, say, 40 managers and, and then 12 leaders and then and then let's say another 250 on top of that. What have been the big challenges in moving into different markets internationally? You know, I think having a presence in those markets is a, a big advantage instead of trying to do it remotely. And as I you know, love, if you're, you're going into Australia, you have an office there. I think that makes a lot of sense. And like you said, in California, being here, you know, that was a, a big driver of success as well. So how have you managed that? Yeah, we've been driven really by customer demand, I would say. So initially, we were servicing some customers across North America and Australia from the UK and other places as well. And we've had a lot of inbound interest from those different countries. So we really kind of support companies remotely for a while. And then as we can see, see the, the kind of interest level there and see that it will support a local team, then we put the local team in. And the US was the first after the UK. And that was really successful. So, you know, putting a few people into the US, that worked well. And we, we kind of developed a model we could replicate. So we, we used the same model for uh, Toronto. And then we've used the same model in Australia. And I think what helps is there's just so much common ground for us with our customers. And believe it or not, whether they're in any of those countries I've mentioned, their requirements are actually very similar. And the product we've built is meeting requirements in all of those countries. So that's probably quite important. If we'd seen that there were huge market differences and we'd have to start again and or launch an entirely new product, that probably would have made us think twice. But in reality, it's the same product and it's, it's just this huge common ground across all of these different countries. That's definitely helpful. Are most of the companies you're working with, are they multinational as well? Most of your clients? I don't think so, no. So Certainly some of them are, but in terms of the majority, I think the majority are specifically in one of those one of those countries and uh, they're just local companies. Of course, there are differences. So, so you know, currencies, languages, different types of internationalization. But to be honest, these are quite kind of minor. They're not rewrites of the products. It's you know, been quite easy to achieve. That's very, very helpful. And, and understanding that before you just jump into a market that you really have that understanding, you can have a critical mass that you know that there's going to be good fit there and you have traction already. Exactly. Yeah. And then I think as we've kind of got more confident and grown bigger, we're doing this earlier. So, you know, in, in the very early days, we would 
would take a lot of kind of convincing to do this and open up in a new market and then we were, would lower the bar a little and now we'll be quite quick so when we see that early interest in a market we know we can we can set up in quite a light touch way we don't employ 50 people on day one we can start with a single digit number of people and then scale up from there that's good so being in, in different places and, you know, you've got different offices and, and hiring fast, how do you maintain a, a corporate culture or is that something that you build or is it more organic and kind of develops on its own? Sure. I mean, my view is in a fast growing business, then we are an exciting mission and we're making a big impact in the world. You know, we're really helping our customers. We're helping the industries that they're in. We're helping the whole supply chain because we go into a company and then they invite their, their trading partners to use our platform as well. So it's a really exciting, high impact journey. And the center of the focus for everyone has to be, you know, that journey and how we can add more value to our customers, how we can make it better, how we can go faster. And, and it is really exciting, you know, and very fulfilling and very rewarding to be on that journey and be having that impact. And also, of course, financially, I mean, our employees all have equity. So every single employee has equity and they've seen the valuation go up tremendously in just two years. And I keep reminding them we're still very small and we're still a fraction of what we will be in a few years time. So there's that aspect as well. And so to come back to your point, this really attracts a certain type of person i would say and because the growth rate has accelerated and some of our people have been around since before we even launched our product and when we were more like a services company then back then it was very steady and maybe you know easier and lower pressure but also less exciting and less rewarding so so i think we've found we've attracted new people that really want to be on that journey you know some people have said this isn't for me i want something that's just more more easy and you know more kind of stable and less change going on and then others have absolutely adapted and are really enjoying it so i think to come back to your point that that sets the tone really you know that's the overall tone and then there's lots of things around the edges about oh yes these are the ways we behave and these are great kind of aspects of being at Enable and the benefits and the perks and so on. But to me, that's all secondary, that the primary thing is the mission. And and that spans every country and every team and every time zone. And so what is your mission? So our mission is to enable trusted trading relationships to serve customers better together. That's our mission. So we see in the supply chain, whatever the industry is, then you've got very disconnected kind of uh, systems. You know, you've got companies using their own homemade systems that are not connected. There's no visibility or poor visibility between those companies. And it results in a lot of internal kind of, should we say, conversations, <laughs> dialogue, disputes, arguments internally between trading partners. And it does actually, unfortunately, result in a breakdown of trust. So there's a, there is a lot of mistrust between manufacturers and distributors and retailers. And what we're really doing, our mission, is to really provide more transparency, to digitize the relationships between those companies and, and equip them, you know, give them the technology so that they can restore that trust, they can build that trust and then focus outwardly on their customers rather than kind of arguing with each other. So that is our overall mission. That's great. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Andrew about the biggest lessons he's learned in building the companies, raising capital and, and exiting right after this. You ever feel like you're in uncharted waters or maybe wish there was a checklist or clear path to follow for your stage of growth? Well, we are one. Champion Leadership Group helps SaaS founders scale from 1 million to 10 million to 20 million and well beyond. Only one in 40,000 companies grows to $10 million in revenue. 
The rest stay small or die along the trail. Building a business is treacherous if you go alone. Instead, travel with experienced SaaS founders and expert guides who help chart your course to consistent results, impact, and freedom while providing support every step of the way. Create your free SaaS growth map at championleadership.com. We're back and my guest today, Andrew Butt, CEO and co-founder of Enable, three-time founder, three exits. You've obviously learned a lot along the way. I mean, you can't uh, have that many companies and, and that kind of success and not learn a few lessons. So what have some of those been and how have you applied those to future endeavors? Sure. Okay. So, I mean, I, I think a big thing is really looking at what type of company you're trying to build. And uh, so with a services company, which is really what I was doing prior to to Enable, it's really about being close to customer. Okay. And I learned early on, you can either be close to customer you can be an innovator or you can be the lowest cost. You know, that's the primary. That could, that One of those things could be the primary focus, but you certainly can't be all three. So as a services company, it's all about being very close to customer, understanding what customers want and really building and delivering what, whatever they want or maybe not whatever they want, but, you know, to a large extent. So in that type of company, it is really about building something which is is quite kind of focused on you know those finite number of customers you know it probably does need to be profitable uh, you're really selling time and it, it will grow steadily and that's a very perfectly valid business model and has a lot going for it so that's what I was doing previously and then if you want to be a product company that's much more in the innovator category because with that you know you have to really build a product which will apply to hopefully millions of customers and certainly certainly thousands and tens of thousands of customers so you can't do whatever a customer wants and you know you can't you've got to be very very focused and that's a very different type of business where you need scale and again to get to that profitability that will take some time because you're going to need a lot of customers um, you know to get to that point and you probably will need to raise capital to get there as well and then the, the lowest cost is not really worth entertaining because it's difficult to be the lowest cost for a sustainable period. So if you focus on being lowest cost, then you know you might do that for a little while, but it's not really a sustainable strategy. So I guess really deciding what you want to be is important. You know, which of those do you want to be? Do you want to be a services company? Do you want to be a product company? Do you want to grow rapidly and be a global scale, or do you want to kind of keep quite small and and you know be profitable from a very early stage? And so that I'd say a key learning lesson for me. And I've kind of had had some experience of both because, again, the previous businesses were services oriented and then Enable today is very much in that product camp. Yeah, I think having that clarity is really key and just knowing, you know, what kind of company you are. Yeah, I think you really nailed that. So, you know, that being the case, how important is it to learn to say no? Oh, extremely important. And I know it's a, it's a cliche, really, isn't it, about prioritization and, you know, the Steve Jobs phrase of a thousand no's for every yes and so on. Everyone kind of says it and they think they know it. But most of us, me included, can do a lot better, a lot better at that and on those ratios of saying no a lot more. And I think having that real focus. So in, in a product company, then, you know, really getting down to what is the one use case that works for, you know, one set of buyers you know in one industry you know what is that use case and really knowing that intimately and focusing on it and being able to replicate and get to scale before you know diversifying and looking at other things because human nature is we always look at too many things we take on too much we spread ourselves too thin and like you said having that clarity 
on what is it we're focusing on here is just extremely important. I think determines the difference between success and failure. Without a doubt. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we can probably all do better at uh, being more focused and saying no. Yeah. When you build out that use case, how do you know when you have the right use case or when you need to adapt? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, any use case where you can get, you know, let's say um, 10 customers. I know uh, Jason Emkin on SASTA, he used to talk about unaffiliated customers. So they can't be your friends or family or companies that kind of or best friends together. But getting, say, 10 completely unaffiliated organizations to use your product and pay for your product and give you, you know, case study and where they can show the value and where they you know, continue using the product, they renew. That's, I'd say, a basic product market fit. You know, you've got one product, you know, one piece of code, which is being used in 10 companies, they're paying for it, and they're getting value. It's worth more to them than what they're paying you. You know, that is a use case. And if you can get 10, and you've got 10 case studies, and 10 people that will renew, you can get 100. And if you can get 100, you can get 1000 and, and so on. So, so whether that's the best use case, I think, you know, the grass is always greener. I think you can always look and say, Oh, well, I've got another idea over here, which might be better. <laughs> but, but I think if you can get to that kind of critical mass, then it's something that's probably worth pursuing. That's really good. And I love that, that, you know, the grass is always greener. As entrepreneurs, I think we, we always look at that. It's like, well, what if I tried this? What if I tried that? But really stay having that, that focus. Exactly. There's no shortage of ideas in the world, is there? And, and there is definitely a massive shortage of execution. So it's about just taking something and getting to that initial traction. And then uh, once you've got that traction, stick with it and focus on it and don't do anything else. Yeah, grow fast. Grow fast or die slow. Absolutely. Yeah. Very true. Focusing in. So tell me about uh, raising capital. What has that experience been like for you? How did you decide to do that versus bootstrap or you know, look at alternative sources of funding? Yeah, so I've been bootstrapping for a long time. And the previous companies, you know, one, we kind of ran as a services company, and uh, it was profitable and growing steadily. And we were, you know, it's generating an income, if you like, so generating an income. But it was very steady growth. And it was never going to be a major global company that would go public, for example, and have a huge impact in the world. It was just a small company. Another one, we again, we bootstrapped and it was acquired very early by a UK private equity company. And they kind of did a buy and build strategy. So they'd bought a bigger company and then they were bolting on smaller companies. And ours was one of those. And I could kind of see the returns from that, that the, the private equity company made. And then we certainly borrowed some money along the way as well. So we had great banking relationships and able to get some debt. But I, th- I think, you know, so, well, before I say but, I think that was for many years. And that was good. It was a good experience. You know, we grew steadily. We had a nice income. It was a good lifestyle. We had happy customers. It was fine. And I did that for, you know, 10 years. And really, I, I just had this desire to build something on a much bigger scale. And, and again, I'm using the same words, but creating something of impact, create, you know, building something of global consequence that would really impact thousands and thousands of companies, not just be a really small company in the UK. And it was clear to me that the only way to really do that was raising capital. You know, debt wouldn't get us there. It just wasn't sufficient. And bootstrapping, again, would just take too long. Um, I know there are some people out there that have been clever enough to bootstrap their way to an IPO. And certainly that is it's possible. But I think after bootstrapping for 10 years or however long, I, I didn't think I could do that. So it was just obvious to me that, that was my desire to create something on a bigger scale and raising capital would be the way to fuel that growth. So what do you think about that, the capital markets today as we look out you know, into the future? Uh, do you think they're going to stay like they are or you know, will the economy affect them? 
Yeah. I mean, I think humans overreact to everything, but in both ways. So looking now at the fact that the markets are massively down, uh, you know, I think the peak was November last year when they got to an all time high. And so now we're kind of, you know, eight months or whatever on from that. And they've come down quite a lot. They're still a lot higher than they were, say, two years ago. And so there's a lot of doom and gloom around. And I'm getting lots of emails like everyone else is saying the world's coming to an end and you won't be able to raise for years. And I think it's nonsense. I think it's just a huge overreaction. I saw exactly the same thing at the start of the pandemic that uh, we closed our Series A in February 20. And and then within a few days, the stock market were was going down the lockdown was a couple of weeks later and people saying you know you won't be able to raise again for a long long time within a few months you know valuations were soaring so when you look at say the nasdaq over a five-year period it's just up and to the right or a 10-year period it's just up and to the right so i think this is just another blip it's good discipline for founders and companies to assess their cost base and their burn rate and and ask those questions but you know i don't think it's a long-term a long-term impact uh, I agree. I, I think there will be some impact, but those are things that we should be watching all the time anyway. Yes. And, and sometimes it's easy for companies to forget. I think that, uh, you know, capital is, is always going to be flowing. Things will always be like they are, but those are things we have to pay attention to. Fundamentals matter. They do. And, and I think building up the balance sheet and having that runway is a good discipline and it does take time. So when you're bootstrapping, of course, your cash generative, you have to be cash generative, really. And so that provides some insulation. I think when you're burning cash, you know, having a good runway is important. And I remember at our Series A, at the point we raised the Series A, our cash was very low. You know, it was very tight. We didn't have much cash at all. And then we did the Series B. And at that point, we then had a good runway already. So we, we didn't really need the Series B when we raised it, but we were able to raise it because the company was doing well. And so you can build that up over time. And I agree, if you're running a company where you expect you can raise at short notice, then that's probably not a good idea. Sure. So if you didn't need the Series B, what was the, the driver behind doing that? And, and you know, because I mean, it dilutes the cap table. So, you know, what was the, the reason to do that? Sure. Well, we knew we would need it at some point. So again, we knew to grow up and build a you know, big global company and go public, it, we'd definitely not be able to do that on just a Series A. So we knew it would be needed. And I think it all comes down to, as you say, valuation and dilution and also the extra value that a new partner can bring. And so Norwest, who led our Series B, Sean Jacobson, who led that and joined our board, you know, he really demonstrated a lot of value. He had great network, uh, really good knowledge on things like uh, partner alliances and how to build up a partner channel and, and many other things. So we really liked him. We liked the firm. And the performance of the company meant that the, the kind of valuation we were commanding was was strong and the dilution was minimal. Um, so we just really looked at all of that and said, we'll need this at some point anyway. And the, the, the overall economics make a lot of sense. That's good. And I think you, that's a great answer. I mean, because it wasn't just dumb money uh, no. poured in, there was actually a lot more value in that in the partnership. And I think that equity partners can be really, really good or they can you know, just be dumb money or, or sometimes not good. Yeah. Someone once told me, and it was a VC, they said that statistics show that a partnership with a VC lasts longer than a marriage. So that's why you need to be sure when you go into business with a new investor that, you know, this is certainly a 10 year, you know, it could be longer, but certainly a 10 year commitment and you can't, and you won't be getting a divorce in those 10 years. So 
uh, yeah, as you say, really important to to diligence the partner and diligence the investor coming in, just like they're dil- diligencing you and make sure it's the right fit. So what are the things that entrepreneurs should be looking at if they're looking on bringing in private equity? What are the, the key things that, that you found in your business relationships? Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's so many different types of investors who have very different kind of remits and expectations and plans. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, it has been all about building a enduring company over a long time period. And, you know, most investors here are looking to take companies public. And they know statistically that, you know, not that many will achieve that milestone. And, you know, some will be acquired and some won't make it at all. But their their time horizon is quite long term and they're willing to be patient. And uh, so that, I think, is really important because if you're a founder who wants to do that, as I am, and then you you know, bring in an investor who's looking to flip in three years, then that would be a huge problem because just as things are starting to take off, you've then got your investor saying, I want to sell my sell my equity. So I think checking that overall kind of compatibility and DNA, uh, you know, sharing the forward plans to say, you know, we are going to be burning X amounts and here's my financial plan for this year, next year, the year after, and this is what I expect to deliver. I expect to convert X amount of burn into Y amount of new revenue and making sure that that's exactly what the investor is expecting. So I think overall compatibility and DNA is very important. And then obviously how you get on with the person because you'll be working with them and talking to them quite regularly. And there will no doubt be bad times as well as good times. So how are they going to react when things are not going well? So those are the main things. That's really, really helpful. So what role have mentors played in your professional development and leadership? Sure. So I think I've had certainly mentors who have been and are entrepreneurs and you know they have great vision and building a company and building a product around the vision. So there's that kind of, I guess you could call it visionary uh, mentorship. I'd say from a sales point of view, you know, again, whether I'm pitching to an investor or a customer or a prospect and also kind of coaching a sales team, I'd say I've definitely had mentors in that space, you know, that have been have coached me on on sales and uh, selling. And then I'd say also on kind of the financials and economics behind a company. So understanding a P&L, understanding a balance sheet, and again, understanding about fundraising, capital raising, that, that, that's been another type. So those are probably my things, really. It's kind of visionary sales and economics. And maybe where I'm I'm not so strong is on the people side. I think I'm probably not a very good manager. So I hope I'm quite a good leader and I'm quite visionary. And in, so I think I can inspire people and whether they're inside the company or outside the company. But I'm not kind of managing lots and lots of people and making sure, you know, and that, that's not really my, my big strength, I don't think. So unfortunately, I've got some very good leaders and managers around me who are better at that than I am. That's good. Well, what is something that you wish someone had told you back in the early days when you were just starting out first building companies? I mean, I think some of my realizations about building a global you know, product company, a software company, and working with investors, I guess it, it would have been, I would have liked to have known that sooner. I think I, I could have probably done this faster and got started several years earlier. And and if I'd known then, if I'd known, let's say, you know, I moved to the US in 2020, if I'd known in, say, I don't know, 2015 or something, what I knew five years later, I probably would have just done it faster because it has been a great journey so far. It's still early days, but and I, I certainly very, feel very privileged to be where I am and have the support that I do today. I think it, it could have been could have been done sooner. 
I think we can all look back and and have those moments. Like if I'd only known five years ago what I know now, (laughs) (laughs) that's great. Well, what advice would you give somebody who is, uh, you know, early stage, you know, you're definitely, you know, much further along than, uh, than a lot of SaaS companies out there, but let's say some, you know, somebody running a company between one and 10 million, what would be your advice to them and, uh, and you know, what steps they should take to, to get to where you are today? Sure. So again, I think it all comes down to what, what the individual wants, you know, what they're trying to create, what they're trying to build and the path that I have taken and I'm, I'm you know, pleased to have taken is hyper growth. And so with that comes very high expectations and, you know, we really have to, and we will take this company public and get, get a significant kind of outcome for our investors. You know, we, that's our responsibility to deliver. They've believed in us, they've put their trust in us, they've invested in us, and that's, that's our duty to deliver. And well, that is, is one particular path. And, you know, I've gone from a situation where Dennis and I owned 100% of our company and uh, we had no investors. And back then we actually had no options or you know, none of our employees had any equity. It was just the two of us. So, you know, things were simple to now, uh, you know, we have got some really great and significant investors on board. We've given equity to all of our team, every single employee, and it's, it's a very different world. I think for some people, they might want more of a middle ground. So, you know, they don't want to be kind of doing hyper growth and be committed to build a, you know, a, I'm making up numbers here, but let's say a $10 billion company, you know, they don't want to really be on that journey because it is challenging, you know, and you are working 20 hours a day and at times and it is, you know, it's, it's not, sure. there aren't, there isn't time to do any hobbies or anything like that. Um, that's fine for me because this is my hobby. This is the thing I want to do, <laughs> but you know, I can understand completely. There will be people where they've got, as you say, 1 million of ARR, 5 million, 2 million, whatever. And the business is doing well. And maybe they're doing, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, 80% year over year growth, and maybe they're burning very little. And that is a different path. It's, it's very impressive and you know a very good path, but it's, it probably doesn't have the same expectations as a hyper growth company. So I think what I'm sort of talking a lot here, aren't I? But I'm saying being really clear about what is it you want, you know, what are you trying to do here? And uh, then going on the appropriate journey and bringing in the right investors and also the right people, the right employees that are on that journey. So that would be very important. That's great. Well, where can people learn more about you and more about Enable online? Sure. So enable.com, uh, we've relaunched it recently and there's a lot of resources there. So we've got, got lots of videos and all sorts of things, you know, webinars. So enable.com is a good site. And then look me up on LinkedIn and that's a great way to connect. So I'd be very happy to connect with anyone and share messages on LinkedIn. Very good. And we'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes. Andrew, really appreciate the conversation. Love having you on the show. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Andrew for coming on the show, sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Andrew and Enable at enable.com. Check them out on all social media as well. And as always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sassfuel.com. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash sassfuel. I'll be sure to read those out on a future episode or Give us a shout out at 903-SASS-FUEL. Use the old phone there, 903-SASS-FUEL, and I will play your comments and give you and your company a shout out on a future episode. Tune in next week for our conversation with Sarah Well, founder and CEO of Dropstat. Sarah is a critical care trauma nurse turned entrepreneur and SaaS founder. 
Dropstat is changing how hospitals staff nursing shifts and create safer patient care and better outcomes in the process. So be sure and come back next week and check that out. It is an amazing conversation. So until we meet again, enjoy the journey.